0: Disneyland. We'll also find out about the creation of Horizons, Robin Hood Sudolali, and open up our mailbag for the first time. So stay tuned, the Progress City Radio Hour is about to begin.
1: Welcome, everyone, to episode two of the Progress City Radio Hour, the sophomore episode. I'm Michael Crawford, the co-founder of ProgressCityUSA.com, and with me, as always, is Beacon Joe. That's me. (laughs) Say hello to the folks, Beacon Joe. Hello, folks. Today, we're going to be talking about, we're going to have part two of our Disneyland spectacular walkthrough. Yeah, and this one's going to move quick. we can get, we got a lot of lands to cover. Got a lot of room to cover, so we got to kick it up a notch. Also, we're going to have like our first episode, our, our song feature, and what do you have for us today?
0: I'm going to do a look at one of my sentimental favorites. It's uh, Udalali from Robin Hood, and we're going to talk a little bit about how Robin Hood came to be. It's a pretty interesting story. Yes, it is, and uh a lot that you might not know about that, and
1: a film that I think gets a bad rap um unfortunately,
0: it's like a yeah it's it's a gateway film into to Disney <laughs> it was for me the first one's always free yeah it it
1: I don't know it was a touchstone in our youth, so I think yeah. there's a soft spot there. And then I'm going to be talking about Disney World, and we are going to be talking about Horizons.
0: What? What? Um, Is that the ride that used to be where Mission Space is now? Yeah, that was that old thing before Mission
1: Space came and brought happy children from around the world to Epcot Center. Did it
0: have thrills, too?
1: It didn't have any thrills, which is why no one liked it. That sounds boring. It was so boring. But... (laughs) (laughs) Ha <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the horizons skit, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the horizons, yes. So we're going to be talking about horizons, and it's my favorite all-time Disney attraction. If for those of you who don't know, probably a lot of you, if you're listening, it's one of your favorites
0: too. I, I, I must add, because you're probably too shy to, that you uh, mounted a early early web campaign to to uh, save it. Yeah, I I did during the. Uh, the go-go
1: 90s. The campaign the to go. save... Dot com hori- the go.com <laughs> 90s. Uh, the 90s. The Disney Decade, uh, the 90s mm-hmm. were. Uh, yeah, the uh, Committee to Save Horizons. And that didn't work out so well, but... It was a noble effort. I know. I, I was, felt, feel as if I was a groundbreaker in yeah. that uh, area. But uh, our first campaign. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be talking about that and listening to a song written for the pavilion... That uh, never actually made it. A song actually written by uh, Richard and Robert Sherman,
0: for which is why they the they could not be on the song feature. We got to get our Sherman dosage.
1: I know it's every every episode has to have at least one mention of the Sherman brothers in some segment. So and Thunder Mesa and the Western River Expedition. <laughs> True, we got to work that in, and then I'll probably have school bread somewhere. So hopefully, hopefully. So we're gonna have all that. And the mailbag, we're going to be talking um, about a couple of things that people sent in to us. But let me say first, well, not first, but now, the reception to the first episode was fantastic. And thank you, everyone, who downloaded, who listened, who reviewed, who shared it, who retweeted it. And to those people, um, george at com. And Ryan at MainStreetGazette.com, who both gave us very lovely reviews. So thank you, everyone.
0: I agree. It's been a, a real pleasant surprise to to get some feedback and so quickly. And we hope you continue to spread the word and enjoy. Uh, we hope we're not due for a sophomore slump. I know. This could be our
1: um, – hopefully it's going to be more Empire Strikes Back and – Less mm, Matrix Reloaded, more Terminator Two, more Terminator Two, less Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yes, this is Progress less City episode two, Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> less cars. Oh, that yeah, never mind. The, it's it's our squeakle. So let's uh, so again, you know, you guys are great. Thank you so much, and thanks to everybody who commented and sent us um, the little messages that we'll be getting to later because that makes it more interesting for us and hopefully for you so without further ado any more comments from you Beacon gracias merci (laughs) and away we go with the news
0: it's time for a look at the news and headlines from around the disney world start off with movie news as alice in wonderland broke through last weekend with a record 116.1 million dollars in the box office that is a record for march weekend debuts uh 3d releases and a 12.1 million dollar imax haul makes it the largest imax release of all time that's insane Yeah. There's also an interesting article in the LA Times about how Dick Cook and Orin Aviv are responsible for that success, but they're no longer with us. Yeah,
1: uh, it's funny. I was discussing this with uh, someone, maybe even today, about um, the the huge sweeping success of the Dick Cooks late this year, and none of those people are with the company now.
0: Yeah. Uh, Also, and... Je- Congratulations to Jeff Bridges for winning the Best Actor Oscar. Flynn, yeah. And speaking of both uh, these things, there's a lot of interest in Tron Legacy because of his win and uh, and a Tron preview. Yeah, it's
1: playing out there in front of Alice, and it just came online. I think it was yesterday,
0: and it oh, it looks so cool. I'm so excited. It does indeed. Uh, also, speaking of of movies coming. It's rumored that there is a reboot of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on the way. Although Rick Moranis swears he remains retired and will not be involved.
1: (laughs) Does it really say that?
0: It does. (laughs) I didn't know. Well, I guess when
1: people don't know you're retired. Oh, poor Rick Moranis. I hope he's okay. And does this mean uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience will remain? I really doubt it. I, um, that's... Yeah, that's shocking. Who knew? Remake Mania, the public demanded it. Maybe it's based on the success of Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. People just needed to know more. I hope it's a prequel. It could be. Because, be. you know, you want to know how everybody got it to be like that. How. Was it, Russ? That... <laughs> na- the neighbor? I've erased all my memory of that. You want to know the backstory on that? French class, man. That was a classic in its time. So it was kind of like the curtain call of, of the 80s movie genre. It really was. I mean, you had uh, yeah, Flight of the Navigator and, man, Disney could make them back then. Indeed. Natty Gann, all leading up to Honey, I- well, that's amazing. I, I look forward to that. I hope, I hope uh, Zac Efron doesn't age out before he can mm. be in that.
2: What you got them? for us?
1: I, oh, well, speaking of remakes, I have a couple of reimaginings. It you has always a- love those. Oh, yeah. Apparently, Disney Theatrical, those sages of the Broadway, um, yeah, they're gonna uh, adapt, I suppose you'd say, Dumbo hmm. for the stage. It's gonna be a short play, and on, <laughs> that's it, it will be the shortest play, it'll have a six page script. And uh, Newsies. Mm. So, uh, again, with the uh, everything is new again, I can only expect that this will be followed by the announcement for Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers <laughs> so to uh, come to the studios. But, yeah, Newsies. I hope wow. they can get Christian Bale to be in it. Me to, too. To come back. All I know is that that will make happy every girl who I was in middle school with. In so KOTB. Go new. <laughs> maybe
0: they can uh, cross promote um yeah what else you got well i'm going over to to disney parks i have a a a little blurb here that siemens and disney have signed a 10-year water technology agreement basically siemens is as as this uh, as you know they sponsor spaceship earth and illuminations already uh but they are actually bringing their technology to the parks they are going to be using a, a salt and electricity water purification system in over uh, 165 recreation sites at Walt Disney World, including all the theme parks and water parks. And see,
1: the sad thing about that is when I saw that uh, press release come across, I was more excited about that than I have been about pretty much any other Disney news in quite a
0: while. It's very exciting. It harkens back to the old uh, innovative days of, of the Water Hyacinth Project yeah. and the old Walt Disney World Reedy Creek master planning. That's exactly what I thought of. My only concern is will this or will this not tamper with the smell of Disney water? Oh, that's a good point. The first thing I thought of was that
1: like, the uh, water fountain water is always so nasty. But that's I hope it true. doesn't tamper with the smell. But anyway, while we're at Disney World, it's uh, suitable to mention the D23 event that was held there last Friday, I believe it was, and ostensibly this was to celebrate the one-year anniversary of D23, the Disney official Disney fan club.
3: Yay.
1: Uh, yay. And um, they had a dinner at the Golden Horseshoe, Diamond Horseshoe, Diamond oh, Horseshoe nice. Review, which meant that everybody got to go into the Diamond Horseshoe Review. Hint, hint, Disney. Hint, hint. Um, and they had that. Stephen Clark, the head of D23, gave a little talk and reminisce. Had some little inside jokes that were apparently pretty funny. And then everybody went to the PhilharMagic Theater for a presentation by Disney Imagineers on the Fantasyland expansion. And Ooh. while this was billed as a sort of, you know, new secrets piece, uh, there really wasn't anything new. In fact, the biggest news was that they seem to have backslided on a few things. Such as? Well, they, they just don't seem to know about a lot of things. Uh, they don't know when Toontown is closing. They don't know or won't cop to knowing, uh, what they're going to do with Mickey and Minnie. Although it's assumed in the short term that they're going to be there in the main street exhibition hall. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called now? Yes. um, they say they don't know what the theme's going to be for the Barnstormer, although even in the most recent D23 magazine, it says that it's going to be themed to uh, clowns from the circus, because it's going to be right next to where they
0: move Dumbo. Well, maybe they have to develop the Dumbo musical a little bit further. Before I know. know. Well, you want to get the tie-in. But, story. You know, story. It, it's, it's all about story.
1: Yeah. But uh, you... We've seen the model where it's themed to the clowns, but apparently they've gone back on that and they said they've considered a lot of things and they don't know. They don't know if Dumbo will have the water feature that all the other parks have. And they don't really know what they're going to do with Mickey and Minnie's house, but they said that it will, and this is a quote, not be eliminated.
0: Well, I wish it'd be eliminated from the Magic Kingdom. They could move it to studios where I, theming that's is already ruined. Exactly. You just drop it in there and no one would notice. I
1: agree. Although that sounds like they're going to be in Main Street for a while, I've heard a few ominous hints of them taking up Main Street permanently. And then uh, someone this and you know this is just a rumor, but someone told me that there had been talk at one point about completely retheming Main Street as a Toon Town of sorts. There's, oh
3: wow, I don't want to say there's. Uh, no way. I, I mean that you I've would seen... think
1: there's no way. <laughs>
0: But, hey, they did not gut Spaceship Earth and build a roller coaster. That's so, true. There is hope. I mean, I'm sure lots of things get proposed. Yeah. but mm-hmm. I'd like to meet the
1: person that proposed that, yeah. if it was indeed proposed. Yeah. Um, other things, uh, Pixie Hollow is still that sort of we don't know what we're going to do. In the model, if you'll note, in the model that they released uh, the picture of, there's a huge spinner attraction there, which is just like the Mater uh, spinner ride that they're going to mm-hmm. put in California Adventure. But that's, I, I'm, I have a feeling that's just sort of eye candy for the model because that hasn't turned up anywhere else. It
0: could so. be the fourth spinner in the Magic Kingdom. Okay. <laughs> or a fifth yeah. with the two Dumbos. Oh, that's
1: true. The counter rotating Dumbos. Do you need a. Uh, well, it's kind mask. of a, uh, I don't know, kind of like the Scrambler. I oh, think. I see. But anyway, I've heard other people, of course the original rumor was that there was going to be a dark ride of sorts. And then that was getting kind of scaled back. So things are getting cut and added and changed. And when there's no truth to, you know, the truth may be out there, but I, who knows at this point. So there's a lot of confusion about that. Also a lot of confusion about the D 23 expo mm-hmm. for this year, which as you know, we were both looking forward to. And, uh, a, at least a month ago, it was a go, uh, as people, who would know have told me uh, it was a go then. And then all of a sudden this news hits that, well, they're not gonna do it this year. They're gonna do it every other year. So again, D23 has not commented on that. Uh, I think we're gonna get an, get an announcement for that this Friday, but uh, so probably by the time you hear this, you'll know. I, you know, we've hashed this out on the blog. A lot of people disagree. A lot of people think it should be special like the Olympics or the Special Olympics. I think that, yeah, I think they should do it. I think they've got new product year in and year out, and there's, you know, almost 100 years of history to mine. So
0: That's the it. thing we were talking about, and you mentioned on the blog, is that uh, the big reveals were not the most exciting part to us about D23 because we knew a lot of them. Um, I mean, Fantasyland Expansion was exciting. The rumors are going around before, but... Um, The most exciting thing to us was kind of probing through Disney history. And uh, so, you know, uh, I feel like most everybody, the reveals were the most important and exciting part. But I I feel like a lot of people were there uh, like like we were to see uh, some good Disney history and meet some Disney legends. Exactly.
1: And the big surprises, the real big surprises were all the movie announcements. And you're making new movies every year. The park announcements were not really that shocking.
0: I thought we won't have the affable Dick Cook. We won't have the
1: affable Dick Cook. And, you know, I don't know how Iger's strategy of um, extremely low-cost franchise films is going to work. But uh, I think we'll be
0: missing Dick Cook. Indeed we will. Well, that's the news for right now. As always, check ProgressCityUSA.com for more up-to-date info.
3: What really happened
0: in Sherwood Forest. Hello folks, it's Beacon Joe. For today's song feature, I'd like to take a look at a song that is more obvious and a little less obscure than most we'll get to on this segment. But it's one that I wanted to include early on as it was highly influential to me as a child, and a song I still enjoy, not only as a piece of Disney music, but music in general. And that's the song Oodle Lally, written and performed by Roger Miller from the 1973 animated movie Robin Hood. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this movie came to be. In 1973, Walt Disney Productions was still reeling from the 1966 death of Walt Disney and the 1971 death of his brother Roy. With trusted lieutenants Don Tatum and Card Walker at the helm, there was a creative paralysis of sorts afoot within the halls of Disney, and the question, what would Walt do, permeated the organization to an unhealthy degree until Eisner and Wells took over in 1984. The result of this was a conservative, no-gamble attitude towards breaking new ground, and a recycling and repackaging of old ideas. If we look over at Walt Disney World at this time, we see that although the resort is wildly popular, fears over the oil crisis that year are leading planned hotels such as the Asian, Persian, and Venetian to be shelved, at first temporarily, then permanently, as is the proposed Thunder Mesa attraction. Instead of investing in a new attraction, particularly the Western River Expedition, which was intended to surpass Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean, Disney management decided instead to simply rebuild a smaller Pirates at the Magic Kingdom to satisfy guests and save money. Feature animation was no different. Every film after Walt's death had the pressure of keeping the Disney animation franchise alive, proving that this medium of filmmaking could be financially viable. Robin Hood had extra pressure, as it was the first film to enter production without Walt being alive. The other two movies released since Walt's death The Jungle Book, and The Aristocats, had his mark on their production in one way or the other. In fact, Walt had gone back and rebuilt The Jungle Book from the ground up, showing more interest in this film than any since Sleeping Beauty and his subsequent change of focus to Disneyland and Walt Disney World. But the idea of Robin Hood, and part of what makes it the movie that it is, goes back a long way in Disney history, and in fact has a lot of Walt involvement in its development. Not only did Walt himself make a Robin Hood movie, the 1952 live-action film Robin Hood and His Merry Men, but the choice of a fox goes back to right after Snow White became a big hit in 1937. Looking around for story ideas for subsequent Disney films, one of the top choices was Reynard the Fox, a story about a mischievous, anthropomorphic fox trickster character. The story proved to be a little too mischievous for Walt, who was concerned that he was not lovable enough to be a protagonist. For a while, he considered putting animated vignettes of Reynard in the film Treasure Island, similar to those in Song of the South with tricks to Rare Rabbit, but those plans were also shelved. Eventually, Reynard got paired with another story idea from the same time the Chaucerian tale Chanticleer, where Reynard was placed as a foil to the rooster Chanticleer. This story idea also went through many variations and shelvings but the most notable instance was when Ken Anderson and Mark Davis proposed the film on the hills of the 1961 popular release 101 Dalmatians. Anderson and Davis spent a long time on character design and conceptual artwork, some of which you can see in the 1991 children's book Chanticleer and the Fox, A Chalcerian Tale. If the artwork here looks familiar to you, it should be no surprise. It looks very similar to the 1970s Disneyland attraction American Sings, and of course Robin Hood. Now, the end of the Chanticleer Saga came at a time where Walt was at Roy Disney's mercy, one of a few times at that. As he was planning his Florida project, he deeply needed Roy's support for a project that would require so much money—the land, the initial theme park buildup, and the eventual building of Epcot City. Roy used this as leverage to try and shutter, or at least diminish, the output of featured animation—a medium which was very costly. And did not return as much profit as the theme parks or live action film.
4: Every town has its ups and downs sometimes ups outnumber the downs.
0: Consequently, around the time the Chanticleer movie was being pitched as a grand musical full of detail and song, it was pitched against the movie The Sword in the Stone, a film that could be created on a very small budget, required a much smaller cast, and would be much more likely to succeed. Roy essentially required Walt to choose between the two, citing that the future of his Florida project may hang in the financial balance. Walt quietly chose The Sword in the Stone, refusing to tell Davis or Anderson and instead letting Roy's lieutenants blame the selection on the fact that chickens are not able to carry a movie. The silver lining of this is that Mark Davis received a call from Walt Disney a few days later, asking him to go help at WED Enterprises. And he would start on the refresh at the Jungle Cruise, and go on to help to create such amazing attractions as the Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, the Country Bear Jamboree, the Western River Expedition, and more. But I digress. Ken Anderson, though he dabbled in Imagineering, remained home at feature animation, and continued to ruminate on the Chanticleer problem. Finally, in 1973, he had his chance. Deciding to instead repurpose the Trickster Fox as the noble Robin Hood, the character everyone knew and loved, he seemed to have his answer. Some of the mischief could even remain. If you remember in the film when Robin gets the jewels by kissing the ring, That's from the initial concept work for Reynard the Fox. Director Wolfgang Woolley Reitherman, one of the Nine Old Men, was again in the director's chair. He had become a de facto Walt after Walt had become more and more engaged in the theme parks, and had directed every animated film since 101 Dalmatians in 1961. Reitherman was intent on making the focus of this Robin Hood, the relationship between Robin Hood and Little John a buddy film in the vein of the 1969 hit Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This most likely is where the western and southern influence of Roger Miller and voice actors such as Pat Buttram as the Sheriff of Nottingham and Ken Curtis and George Goober Lindsay as the vultures Nutsy and Trigger come from. Also it seemed to hit a contemporary note as the folk music of Glenn Campbell, Jim Croce and others was particularly popular at this time. And the last two Disney animated films had been dominated musically by jazz, those again being The Jungle Book and The Aristocats. Robin Hood is considered by some to be one of the poorest efforts to date by the Walt Disney Studios, and most cite Larry Clemens's story work as one of the reasons. Critics cite a lack of good story, instead erring towards gags aimed at children in the vein of Saturday morning TV. The movie also lacked a true Disney gut-wrenching moment, as the ending was changed from Robin being wounded and King Richard intervening on Prince John, to a much less challenging ending. One of these critics was a young animator on the film, Don Bluth, who went on to start his own company and make movies such as An American Tale and All Dogs Go to Heaven. He said that although the animation showed the most refined version to date of the Xerox technology which began with 101 Dalmatians, the story lacked a certain heart. Bluth, incidentally, went on to make his own attempt at the Chanticleer story with a movie Rockadoodle, starring the aforementioned Glenn Campbell. Another criticism is the reuse of animation, most notably in dancing taken from Snow White and the Jungle Book for the phony King of England sequence. That wasn't the only material reused. Phil Harris reprised his role as a giant bear, very similar to Blue from the Jungle Book. And sound effects were even reused, as the bells chiming for Robin Hood and Maid Marian's Wedding were actually heard in Cinderella as well. Robin Hood was definitely produced cheaply, and to some it shows but it provided a financial success in a difficult time for the studios, as we've mentioned. It was one of the most financially successful Disney films of all time, at that time, in fact. One thing that can't be denied is Ken Anderson's work, which was unique at the time. He essentially designed characters as humans in animal suits, with movements and limbs like people. This uh, had the offshoot of giving rise to the furry culture which I'm afraid I won't delve further into on this podcast, nor any other. Though I understand these complaints about Robin Hood, it remains one of my sentimental favorites. The music and the mood of the movie was very captivating to me as a child. And though some criticized the choice of southern and western voiced actors and songs for a movie based in medieval England, I find those elements to be some of the most oddly charming. Roger Miller appears as Alan Adele, the narrator and bard of the film. He's a rooster, another Chanticleer influence, and he sings three songs, Whistle Stop, Not in Nottingham, and Oodle In addition, there are two other songs that were featured in the original album of Robin Hood, which was more or less a retelling of the movie with sound clips and narration taken directly from the film. Those other two songs are the Oscar-nominated Love, written by Disney vet George Bruns, Runs uh, arranged tons of Disney films and wrote the ballad of Davy Crockett. He also co-wrote Yoho, A Pirate's Life for Me with Existencio and the Love Bug Thing. There is also another song called The Phony King of England, written oddly enough by Johnny Mercer, who wrote tons of songs, including Moon River. But Miller's songs definitely have aged the best. He started off his music career with a brief stint with Nashville guitarist Chet Atkins who encouraged him to develop his craft. In the meantime, he developed a reputation as a singing bellhop at Nashville's Andrew Jackson Hotel, until he took up with the likes of Minnie Pearl from the Grand Ole Opry and later He-Haw, and crooner George Jones. He would eventually come into his own with his unique style, his most famous song probably being King of the Road, but you can also check him out in songs like You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd, and the very charming Little Toy Trains. Robin Hood was released on the hills of his 1973 album, Dear Folks, Sorry I Haven't Written Lately. The Robin Hood songs that Miller does are charming in their delivery, construction, and recording quality. And as a narrator, the song we're about to listen to is right at the beginning of the film, and quickly establishes the focus of the movie, this buddy film conceit between Robin Hood and Little John. So here it is, Udalali, written and performed by Roger Miller, from the 1973 release, Robin Hood. Enjoy.
4: Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other one has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle lolly, golly, what a day Never ever thinking there was danger in the water They were drinking, they just guzzled it down Never dreaming that a scheming sheriff and his posse Was a- watching them and gathering around Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest Jumping fences, dodging trees and trying to get away Contemplating nothing but escape and finally making it Oodle-lolly, oodle-lolly, golly, what a day Oodle-lolly, oodle-lolly, golly, what a day
1: Hi everyone, it's Michael again with our regularly scheduled look into the history of Walt Disney World. In this episode, we're going to discuss an attraction that's near and dear to many veteran Epcot fans, and that's the 1983 classic Horizons. Now, long-time readers of Progress City might find it odd that I actually haven't written that many stories about Horizons, when it's my all-time favorite attraction and something that greatly influenced me as a young Progress citizen. As a matter of fact, my very first Disney-related project online was something way back in the mid-90s that I very optimistically called the Committee to Save Horizons. Now, spoiler alert, it didn't. But it was the first of many fan efforts to save the attraction, and it started the ball rolling uh, that would eventually lead to Progress City. In the decades since, Disney scholarship online has grown by leaps and bounds, And my original fancy pants webcot site looks hilariously primitive in comparison now countless sites and writers have weighed in on horizons in that time and with information pouring in from the attraction's own designers and well-respected disney historians like martin smith it's hard to think of anything to say about this attraction that more than a decade after its final closure remains a fan favorite and perhaps the most discussed and loved extinct attraction in the history of Walt Disney World. Now, all that being said, let's talk about Horizons. For this segment, we're going to stick to the events leading up to Horizons grand opening on October 1st, 1983. We'll save an exploration of the pavilion itself for future episodes, but for now, let's just see how Horizons came to be. If you want to be really pedantic, and I do, Horizon's roots go back to at least 1958, and that's when Walt and his Imagineers at WED Enterprises designed Edison Square as a possible GE-sponsored expansion to Disneyland. This project would have added a cul-de-sac to Main Street, USA, where guests would witness the advent of electricity in Thomas Edison's lab, and then would see how it has affected the lives of people over the years. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because while Edison Square was never built, it did evolve over time into the Carousel of Progress, which debuted as part of General Electric's Progress Lamp Pavilion at the New York World's Fair in 1964. Now, of course, part of the attraction at this time was the Progress City diorama, whose relevance to this piece should be obvious. Anyway, after the fair ended, the Carousel of Progress made its way to Disneyland, and it was later relocated to the Magic Kingdom in Florida in 1975. That leaves us time-wise in the early years of planning for what became the Epcot theme park. Walt's plans for an Epcot city had been abandoned after his death, and a number of different theme park concepts evolved during the 1970s to realize some of the futuristic themes of Progress City in a format that Disney executives were more comfortable with, that being, obviously, the theme park. In 1978, Disney settled on a proposed layout for Epcot Center that's roughly recognizable as the precursor of today's park, and development then began in earnest. Even at that late date, though, Epcot's future was still dicey. Disney was having trouble lining up sponsors for the park during the hard economic times of the 1970s, and it wasn't until General Motors signed on as the park's first sponsor in January of 1978 that Disney really felt comfortable moving forward with their plans. Even by the time of the park's groundbreaking in October 1979, the only committed sponsors for the park were GM, Exxon, and Kraft. Talks were underway with AT&T, Coca-Cola, and Kodak, but Disney had no guarantee that these corporations would sign on, although thankfully they eventually did. One other company that was still in preliminary negotiations in 1979 was General Electric, who was still sponsoring the Carousel of Progress in the Magic Kingdom at that time. Reports from late that year mentioned that GE was to sponsor a pavilion called Science and Invention. And this is really the first glimpse of what would eventually become Horizons. Science and Invention was a good summary of GE's intentions for their attraction at Epcot, because it was their hope that the new pavilion would show guests how GE's new products would help improve their lives and, in effect, usher in the future. Now, GE's slogan at the time was, We bring good things to life. And that's really what they wanted for the new show something forward looking and progressive, and something that would, for all, all intents and purposes, be a sequel to The Carousel of Progress. Now, the first design staff assigned to the pavilion were two very well known Imagineers, George McGinnis and Colin Campbell. They went to work on the project in 1979. And what they came up with first was something that they called the Edison Lab concept. The ride, much like the old Disneyland Edison Square plans, would have been a look back at Thomas Edison and the origins of GE. It would then have taken guests through a survey of the company's technological feats up to the present day. Now, when the Imagineers presented this design to then-GE chairman Reginald Jones, he rejected it. Or, as Marty Sklar would later say, and this is his quote, they told us our idea stunk. As I mentioned before, GE wanted something forward looking, and they didn't want to dwell on the past. They also wanted something a bit more spectacular, and so the Imagineers went back to the drawing board, and it was at this time that the idea emerged to make the new attraction a literal sequel to the Carousel of Progress. Now, as you probably know if you're listening to us, That show follows a family over the course of about a century, from roughly the 1890s to the present day. And it shows how technology has changed and enhanced the lives of people during that period. The new Epcot attraction would pick up from there, uh, starting with a humorous look back at the futurism of yesteryear, but then it would meet up with our Carousel family and follow them into the next century, into a world of space colonies and undersea cities and desert farms. These early decisions were hashed out by a large team of people from both WED and GE. When George McGinnis and Colin Campbell resumed work on the second draft of the GE Pavilion, they were joined by veteran Imagineer Claude Coates. Now, Coates, who worked at some point on most of the new Epcot attractions, was the first official show designer for the GE ride during those early phases, and it was Coates who along with architect Bill Norton and industrial designer Bob Kurzweil, hammered out the first real layout for the pavilion. Later, after he finished the 1930s scene in the ride with Colin Campbell, George McGinnis would take over as show designer for the rest of the attraction's development. When the design team had sorted out the basic storyline of the ride, Tom Fitzgerald came on as the head of the story team, and they helped hone the narrative and add in detail to the story. The original working title for this new attraction was Century 3, as America during that time was fresh off the celebrations of the 1976 Bicentennial, and the new attraction was really intended to show what America would become during its new third century. As a press blurb from August 1980 said, the Century 3 Pavilion would feature a curving screen eight stories high, giving the audience views of outer space and inside a molecule. Guests will see robot mining, an undersea habitat, underground homes, and desert farming. As you can see, the concept for the attraction was pretty similar to the ride we all eventually came to know. Still, there were a few elements that were lost along the way. Mark Novodnik, who was a show writer at Imagineering, came up with an idea for a post-show area called Future Fair, which would highlight various GE products and services. Longtime readers might remember that we've shown a piece of George McGinnis's concept art for that post-show previously on the Progress City blog, and we may provide a link to that in the show notes. Jack Welch, who would eventually take over as chair of GE from Reginald Jones, actually vetoed the idea of a post-show because, and if you can believe this, he didn't want anything too commercial. The post show's $28 million budget was then funneled back into the ride itself, allowing it to become longer and more elaborate. A few elements from the Lost Post Show did make it into the ride itself, though. Marty Sklar had wanted to incorporate IMAX screens into the attraction, and because McGinnis had been working on a project with Omnimax screens, he opted to use that technology instead. McGinnis originally suggested that the Omnisphere, which would have been formed by three adjacent Omnimax screens, be used as the grand finale for the attraction. The story team, though, moved it to the midway point of the ride, where it would be used to depict the modern world and current technologies. When Marty Sklar asked him to come up with a new finale, McGinnis decided to take an idea from his rejected post-show area and then use it for the ride's new big finish. Now, McGinnis' original idea from the post-show was for a tunnel that guests would pass through while standing on a moving belt. They would be followed by a variety of moving images that would highlight the different businesses and technologies that were part of the GE Empire. And this was inspired by some journal articles that McGinnis had seen about proposals for placing ads in subway tunnels that would then follow alongside moving trains. Now, after studying up on the mechanics of these moving projections synced to ride systems, McGinnis proposed to salvage that idea and eventually it became the famous choose-your-future sequence at the end of the Horizons ride itself. At some point, Imagineers realized that this Century Three name might be a little cryptic for foreign visitors, for whom the date 1776 bore little meaning. By the time GE officially signed on as sponsor in October of 1980, the name of the pavilion had been changed to Future Probe. The press blurb at the time said that during the 20-minute ride, passengers will encounter storytelling effects highlighted by three-dimensional scenes and nine-story-high film projections. As a finale, guests will be able to contribute their own dreams and hopes for the future via audience pulling devices within the ride vehicles. Now, that last bit indicates the initial uncertainty at Imagineering about how the new finale would be used. It was originally proposed as that blurb indicates to poll guests on various issues about their future which is an idea that really sounds strangely similar to the recently added finale to spaceship earth ge rejected the idea though saying that they could easily get meaningful polling or research data from simply surveying a small sample of guests as they exited the pavilion instead it was decided to use the technology to allow guests to choose their own finale for the attraction. And as those of you who eventually rode the attraction will remember, those possible suggestions included space, the desert, and undersea. Throughout this process, from at least 1980 on, the design for the pavilion itself is indistinguishable from the Final Horizons building. The decision on the building's layout was really determined by the final placement of the 90-foot Omnimax screens, around which the architect George Rester designed the gem-like spaceship building that we would come to know. While the pavilion was still known as Future Probe as late as April of 1981, it was decided that another name change was in order. Now, Ned Landon, who was GE's representative on the ride's design team, would famously say about the Future Probe name that, and this is a quote, we always thought it had a rather uncomfortable medical connotation. Several new names were proposed, including Great Expectations. But in the end, the team settled on Horizons. As Landon would go on to say, We thought Horizons was just right. There's always a horizon out there. If you try hard enough, you can get to where it is, And when you do, you'll find there's still another Horizon to challenge you, and another beyond that. By this point, Horizons had almost evolved into its final form, and only a few alterations remained. And these were mostly the result of budget cuts. The first of these occurred when the ride was still under design, and the Imagineering team was asked to cut $10 million from the final budget. McGinnis saved some money by condensing the floating city scenes into a single show bay by using double-sided sets for the pod bay, the classroom, and the undersea restaurant scenes. Bigger cuts involved the Omnisphere, where the large format film would show cutting-edge technology from the modern day. Now in Claude Coates' original layout, the ride vehicles would have exited the historical portion of the attraction by rising up along a spiral track past a visual montage of artwork from old pulp science fiction magazines, then it would enter the Omnisphere on the second floor of the building, where it would be surrounded on all sides by three Omnimax screens, and then the ride vehicles would make two complete downward circuits around a central column and exit the Omnisphere on the ground floor. Once the vehicles were out of the Omnisphere, They would rise again to the second floor of the building and enter the third act of the attraction which took place in the future. The budget cuts eliminated one of the three OmniMax screens, and to save costs on Ride Track, the upward and downward spirals were also cut out. The ride vehicles would instead rise from the ground floor to the second floor, via one single 90-second pass of the two remaining Omnimax screens. Now, this decision also led to the removal of the Pulp Magazine montage, and that show space was instead used for the future from the 50s scene. Much later in the design process, the 50s scene was the site of a final budget cut. Now, the Imagineers had originally intended to continue the use of the fully dimensional animatronics figures that had been used in the attraction to that point. But to save money, it was decided instead to shift to the more stylized design we would see in the final attraction, painted flats lit by blacklight and then figures made from wire sculptures that were painted and lit to look like neon. This would probably have succeeded in cutting the budget had Imagineer John Hinch not come along and decided that the scene wasn't using the full height of its space effectively and added an enormous tower to create visual interest. One final element that didn't make the show was part of the transition in the futuristic scenes from the Undersea City to the Space Colony. Now, you might remember that the solo subs from the Floating City and the Inner Colony shuttles from Bravo Sensari shared a similar design, and this was because McGinnis designed them that way so that there could be a visual transition between the two scenes, with a projection of a sub morphing into a space pod. This ultimately didn't work, because the projection device designed for the effect was jostled by ride vehicles passing, and that made the projected image too shaky to work. So, after years of work, and name changes, and cutbacks and additions, Horizons finally opened on October 1st, 1983. It would operate continuously for a decade, until GE dropped their sponsorship in 1993, And after that it would remain open on and off until january of 1999. now as i said at the start we'll discuss the ride itself in a future episode of the podcast but for now i want to leave you with one last hint of the horizons that never was one of the fundamental elements of all the original epcot pavilions was the fantastic music and if you remember every attraction had its own catchy theme song and Horizons was no exception. What a lot of fans might not know though is that Horizons theme song was originally intended to be penned by those legendary Disney songwriters, Richard and Robert Sherman, they of It's a Small World and There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow and so many more. For Epcot, they composed the Astuter Computer Review and for the Imagination Pavilion, they wrote One Little Spark Magic Journeys, and Making Memories. They also wrote several songs throughout the development of Horizons, but none of those were ever used. One attempt from June of 1980, when the ride was still called Century 3, was entitled Tomorrow's Windows. In October of that year, they wrote Tomorrow is the Rainbow, which seems to have also gone by the title New Horizons, which, of course, is the same name as the song by George Wilkins that was eventually selected as the pavilion's theme. The reason that none of the Sherman songs were used goes back to GE's original mandate for the pavilion. They wanted something forward-looking, and something that had never been done before. The Sherman songs, in the eyes of GE, felt like very traditional Disney material, and it didn't fit the vibe of what they were looking for. Unfortunately, only one of these abandoned tracks has ever emerged to collect her circles, and that's a third Sherman ditty called Reach for New Horizons. There are a handful of different versions of this online, which indicates that maybe this song made it further along in production than some of the others. Regardless, it definitely has that Sherman Brothers vibe, and it's kind of strange to think of Horizons with this different soundtrack that would perhaps have linked it more with the other original 1982 Epcot attractions. But then again, that's exactly what GE didn't want. So here it is, so you can decide for yourself, from roughly 1980 or 1981. It's Reach for New Horizons by Richard and Robert Sherman.
4: There's a smile on the face of tomorrow, like the heartwarming sight of a friend.
0: To part two of our trip around Disneyland. Come join us as we're down in New Orleans Square on the rivers of America.
1: Big fan of New Orleans Square and You know, we talked about the scale on uh, Main Street being so different from uh, Walt Disney World. But I thought one of the interesting things is, as you got further into the park, into the later construction, New Orleans Square is very much on a scale similar, I feel, to Disney World. And uh, maybe not in footprint. The footprint is very small. But in a lot of ways, it's like a pavilion at World Showcase. Because it's very detailed, very that larger, real-world scale closer to it. And um, very windy, mm-hmm. but
0: fantastic. It was a lot like World Showcase. It also did remind me of its, you know, uh, counterpart in Florida Liberty Square. Uh, it was, you know, Liberty Square is not as windy and and, uh, but the level of detail is pretty similar. Um, yeah, really cool to see those uh, masts as we get out of Pirates. Here are masts at the end of, you know, one down Royal Street. I think it is of like a, you know. And that was very I had had no idea that was there. And you look up and you see these masts
1: over the building. So it looks like, you know, the ports over there. It's right. very cool. Very cool. Yeah,
0: really neat. Uh got to go, you know, look in on Club 33. We're still waiting for uh for one of you all to our invitation. Yeah. But would we, we had a guy like oh, staring at us through Club Twenty Thirty Three, and I was very jealous of him.
1: Yeah. What's up? what's your deal, guy?
0: Yeah, what? that's rude. Um, walking through there was really neat. Uh, did not disappoint. One thing I wasn't expecting to see was the extension of New Orleans Square across from where the train picks up. It looks like, to you know, to what you're supposed to see. It looks like it just keeps on going. There's like a, a street that goes down where the railroad comes in. There's like music being pumped out from one of the windows. And laundry, I think. I mean just yeah. more stuff. And Lots it looks of like just it random going.
1: talking and conversations and just sort of weirdness. Yeah. Like domestic violence and things. <laughs> right. I don't know. But
0: live music. Great yeah. to see.
1: Lots of live music. Lots of good live entertainment throughout the park, mm-hmm. which is always good to see.
0: A lot more than, than uh in Florida. I thought there was I mean, I think we ran into three different sets of uh, ensembles in New Orleans Square alone. Yeah, just sort um, of blues Dixie Dixieland. Really cool. Uh, really neat to see Haunted Mansion. Yeah, uh, we uh, managed to
1: uh, get in since it was closing. We were there, our first day was its last day before it went down for rehab.
0: And I've always been of the opinion that, you know, since their copies uh, and Walt Disney World has a couple of extra show scenes in theirs, that there's no way that it could be better and I don't I mean I I think they're pretty much the same but the exterior which I had often dismissed and been like eh boring it was really neat where it was really beautiful and neat see the sunset over it and stuff really cool I had dismissed it too and it was very effective and
1: it really uh, helps I think the attraction to enter through the front door which you do at Disneyland you don't at Disney World I think everything that happens once you enter is and I know some of our readers may disagree, but better at Disney World. Uh, the, the sort of entrance foyer with the picture, the uh lift rooms, and all the enhancements they've made at Disney World with the audio and the little show scene additions. And it's just a bigger ride in Florida, and I think it works better. But the exterior at Disneyland, the entrance there, they I think they
0: have us. But, Except for the fact that Splash Mountain is like three feet away. Yeah,
1: that uh, that was kind of disappointing and really odd is that there's a couple of sort of trees and then there's Splash Mountain right, easily visible from Haunted Mansion. That kind of clashes.
0: Yeah. Uh, it was neat to be on the, uh, the different side of the lift room, though, where you go down.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you actually go down. That's true. But then the load area, not like in Florida, it's... Almost like you're in a giant void because you're mm-hmm. inside, you go past some of the uh, the busts that look like they're following you. They have the pictures, those famous pic, Mark Davis pictures on the wall in the hallway instead of in the attraction. But then when you get in your doom buggies, you're just sort of in this big black void.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, we heard about at D23 that that was in the beginning intentional, I think. And then as they've gone along with different iterations of the Haunted Mansion, they've had to go back. And kind of dress them up more, especially with the Disneyland Paris version, yeah, which is kind of like the staircase and everything. They're like, we finally got it right there, and now I think they're kind of going back gradually and with different rehabs, because definitely they've put the pictures up at, at the Magic Kingdom, and it looks a lot better. Yeah, so. much better, much better. But you know, Haunted Mansion,
1: not as big a, definitely nowhere near Pirates of the Caribbean as, as far as difference between the two, right. And then, you know, there's Splash Mountain, which is like Splash Mountain, but different and uh, smaller scale. It
0: moves quicker because it is smaller. You're, the animatronics are just a little bit less advanced because they were used in America <laughs> a little bit more terrifying because... A little bit more showbiz pizza.
1: Yeah, a little... Uh, they're kind of thrashing around and it's, you know, you go down and the first thing you see are the storks drinking their like mint juleps and smoking their cigars and... Again, it's that thing of everything is right up in your face. So it's just all that
0: more <laughs> sort of... And you're kind of just cruising by it as it's in your face. Yeah, and those and they
1: really move. There aren't those, I feel, delays that the vehicles in Florida have. Like when you go over a flume, you don't stop and wait and then go over the flume. You go up to the flume and go right over.
0: Yeah, it was, it was neat. I, I would not say it was superior, but it no. was more comical and... You know, very similar experience overall. And what's up with, why is Brer Fox so different? He had I this little, know. like,
1: uh, I don't know. He hadn't had the Grecian formula that day. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so Splash Mountain, great as always, of course. Uh, Winnie the Pooh, the less said the better. Uh, really, really, guys. The load area, top notch. The load <laughs> area was, when well, the best thing you say it. about the ride is the load area was awesome. And it was awesome, but... um, the, yeah, no. You got rid of Country Bears for that?
0: Really? Yeah, I mean, not the biggest poo
1: fan. Poo, poo. Well, I, you know, I'm not the biggest poo fan, but I think the poo ride in Florida is a good effort, and it has some nice effects, and it has some good music.
0: You're just talking about the elephant smoke ring, aren't you? And,
1: well, yes. It's all about the smoke ring Boy. when it works. But, yeah, all pretty much everything that you could think of that's cool
0: about the ride in Florida is not
1: in the one in california
0: right yeah the good thing is there's never a line for it yeah
1: weird although the ride vehicles are incredibly uncomfortable
0: yeah i did think i was gonna die yeah my kneecap reconstructive
1: surgery will take place very soon but enough of that frontierland you know waltz big land waltz you know the, the most timely land when the park was built, I think. Mm-hmm. The hip land. The hip land that captured the culture. It was the Hannah Montana of its age.
0: It's, it's kind of been chopped up uh, for these other two lands that we've just been talking about. But it was really neat to see. Uh, there are definite differences. It's a lot smaller, obviously. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, too. I mean, uh, you kind of knew your way around Frontierland pretty pretty easy.
3: Uh, yeah, there's it, not
1: much to see. But except for having um, Big Thunder on the exact opposite side, Mm -hmm. it felt, you know, pretty normal. And I think the weird thing for us is being at D23 and we had that thing that Tony Baxter and Ed Hobelman showed us all those videos of Disneyland back in the day. And how, I mean, Frontierland was a third of the park. It was enormous. And you had this... uh, you know, the mine train and the donkeys and the stagecoach and everything else. Native
0: American dancers. Uh, yeah. Which I want them to bring back bring somehow. Bring
1: back. Kurt Russell could do it. But, um, it's going to be on the top of Thunder Mesa. <laughs> but, uh, so bitter. you know, all that stuff's sort of been pared away and the land seems less than what it was, but there are lots of neat little artifacts of that era, which I did not expect.
0: Yeah. The front loading of the Gordon, Gordon, Golden Horseshoe, uh, seeing how it was kind of the main attraction when it opened, really cool, and it was hopping when we yeah, went in there.
1: I was really because I wasn't sure what, if anything, they still had at the Golden Horseshoe. I was so excited to see that they were had having shows, so we went in, and you know, it was always standing room only. Like the first couple of times we looked in there, there was no way we could even get in the building, and uh, we managed to get seats for one show, and the show was fantastic and uh, like you said people were nuts and it was it was packed standing room only and they were selling a lot of ice cream yep. So, disney world Take listen note. why don't you use the, duh, 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 whole yeah we shoot. had some
0: good ice cream i want to come back for the chili and the bread
1: bowl that that the, the ice cream was very choice chili and the bread bowl sounds good right now but uh, and you know to think of like oh well that's Walt's box. That's where Walt mm-hmm. always sat. And that's
0: Edwin's box, that's, and that is it,
1: where Edwin sat. And you know, I, you know, wish Wally Bug was there, but whatever. But um, yeah, it. It's just a tribute to how if you if you offer these things to the public, and if you do it right, then they will respond. Because that place was bonkers. Yeah,
0: and I, you know, it was Billy Hill and the Hillbillies, not the original Golden Horseshoe show, which they don't have anymore. I thought it was a great show. It was I mean, a you know. really good show. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it's
1: corny in the right way. Corny in the Walt way, not yeah, corny Yeah, it's kind in
0: of the, a, even more like the Hoopty Doo, I think, than the original Golden yeah,
1: Horseshoe it, it had a very Hoopty Doo vibe, that's true. So that was ex- that was an exciting, you know, it was exciting to be able to do
0: that. Um, mine train, as you were talking about artifacts, the the old uh, tunnels from the mine train through Nature's Wonderland, the train that was actually out there, amazing to see, and I became quite obsessed with wanting that ride to be there. <laughs> I know,
1: I would, man, I would love to ride that ride. And, uh, you know, all the, the tunnels still there, all those, you know, uh, See a few of the animatronics from uh, the Mark Twain and uh, yeah, I would love to have ridden that. I kind of hate that it's not there, but uh, Thunder Mountain very good. Very good for it's such smaller scale, but uh, very effectively used.
0: Yeah, very great use of space and cool that they kept Rainbow Ridge there, which was the entrance to Mind Train through Nature's Wonderland. Cool show that Tony Baxter really did you know, want to preserve something that uh, yeah. it's still there.
1: And did a good job with that. And speaking of Tony Baxter, the next stop would be his Fantasyland, which is the sort of remodeled Fantasyland from 1983 which he led and it is incredible.
0: It is beautiful. Yeah, the attention to detail again, like you were saying, it's reminiscent of World Showcase. Kind yeah, of. it's
1: very the architecture of it. For those of you who haven't seen it, every ride building is it's not like those long carnival tents in Florida. Every different ride—the Toad, Pan, Alice, uh, Snow White, Pinocchio—even if they're in the same show building, they have a separate facade that's in a different, appropriate style for mm-hmm. the attraction. And it is very world showcase. The level of detail and styling.
0: Yeah, walking in there, looking at Toad, kind of, kind of Toad with uh, the Matterhorn in the background, did kind of bring me a shudder, thinking about that we could have had a Swiss pavilion with the Matterhorn. Yeah, that's yeah. what it would look like. Gives me
1: a shudder thinking
0: we could have Toad in Florida. Yeah. Uh, yes. I did take pictures of all the exits of the Fantasyland attractions, which I might post because they looked so amazingly ornate, and probably nobody looks at them ever. It was amazing,
1: and the, yeah, it, like there's a wonderful level of detail, and there's so many attractions in such a small area. It's not a sprawling Fantasyland. It's not as big as ours is in Florida or is going to be in Florida, but there's such a critical mass of attractions.
0: Yeah, it was neat to see also that, um, the speaking of Epcot, that there are certain effects that have been lost uh, from the early or, original Epcot dark rides, like Imagination and such. They show up there in those Fantasyland rides. There's like a, a crow projection and the Snow White queue. There's a lot in the Alice in Wonderland attraction, the Peter Pan attraction. Neat like early fiber optics kind of. Epcot effects—that it was really neat to see again, especially in a different context. It was kind of bizarre.
1: Yeah, you—you uh, you were totally right uh, when you pointed that out. That I just—you get this real feel that everybody worked on Epcot, and then uh, you know they were working on Tokyo Disneyland, and then they worked on these dark rides because so much of that projection technology, the projection of animation, and little different visual tricks, and the, the fiber optics. It was so much like uh, you know, El Rio or uh, especially Journey into Imagination. Mm-hmm. Really, a yeah. lot in those dark rides, a lot of that sort of Journey into Imagination feel. And just those extra little bits that were missing from the sort of lower grade versions in
0: Florida. And yeah. And some that weren't even there at all. Like some that weren't even there. Alice in Wonderland, which I loved a lot of people don't,
1: love. I know. That was, you know, not having ridden these and read reviews over the years, people saying that, you know, Alice and Pinocchio get singled out a lot for being the lower grade or lower tier. But they're far superior to everything except Peter Pan in Florida. Right. And Alice, you know, you've got the two stories. It's Indoor Outdoor. Lots of great little effects. and yeah, a lot uh, of sight gags. A lot of sight gags. Toad is great. Peter Pan, of course, is great. Uh, but, you know, just a fantastic job still, whatever, almost 30 years later. It's, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Much to our chagrin, the storybook land, canal boats, and train were closed, which was painful.
1: I know. I was, always had looked forward to seeing that.
0: but That's just another reason to go back. Exactly. Matterhorn exceeded expectations for me. I've been looking up forward to that for a long time. Me too.
1: It it definitely exceeded my expectations.
0: Yeah, wrote it at night, which I would imagine Disneylanders let me know it. It seemed like that would be the superior way to do it. It seemed a lot like Space Mountain and kind of the exciting like didn't know when you were going in and out and really neat to do the dual bobsled thing, which was really hectic and yeah. really neat.
1: Well, and again, the thing with the small
0: rooms,
1: all these attractions with these small rooms. So you don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to be around the next corner because it's so turned in on itself. And I I think, you know, comparing what it most often gets compared to Everest and Florida, those two sort of analogs. Why is it it is a superior coaster to Everest? Because first, there's always something to see. And it's so in and out. It's so unpredictable. It's not just going around in a big circle, you know. True, true.
0: Uh, Small world. I've become a big, big fan of through the years because I love the Sherman Brothers and I love Mary Blair and what better outlet for that? I know the creepy little dolls, but I know that's it's,
1: it's. It's so ubiquitous, you don't even think about it for most of your life, like if you've written it, and you think, ah, the kid's thing, and everybody makes fun of the song. But then, like, when you, uh, I don't know, sit back and sort of think about the skill that went into making it happen, it's very, yeah, it's it's much
0: more complex than you would actually think
1: at first glance. Yeah.
0: Uh, The design work inside and outside, especially this version, the outside was beautiful. The whole... I'm uh, glad they painted it back to pure white for the fiftieth yeah, anniversary. Colors. Really neat to see it at night. They said that Walt had always wanted to do multicolored effects on it, but had never been able to do it until the fiftieth rehab when they had a white thing and then they had the, you know, LED technology where they could do it. Really beautiful, really beautiful loading area. The exterior flume is that going through the gardens with the
1: Dopieri is very nice.
0: Mhm and it's it's a lot different than florida in a way you know uh that it's a canal boat instead of a flooded floor uh so the show is again right up next to you there are all these little anterooms rooms that tell you where you're going and have little like little travel posters
1: or something yeah which was that was odd but yeah it's very again because you don't aren't in this giant flooded room it's much more intimate scale and they are right up on you and of course they do have the characters characters now is it you know it i'm not as against it as i once was because some of them really worked in the context the pretty much anything from a mary blair that mary blair had worked on the film like alice or cinderella those were great and there were some that just stood out Terribly.
3: Mm.
0: The cool thing about the Alice one is they actually lifted the white rabbit design exactly from a Mary Blair drawing. So that was cool to see that attention to detail. Now the Woody and the Little Mermaid, Ariel, I mean, there were some that were just pretty atrocious and too much. Nemo. Nemo Nemo. looked exactly like Nemo. It's like, we don't need Nemo
1: and anything else, eh? Nemo and Dory looked like they had been taken out of the window of the Disney store and put in there. As did Pinocchio, as did, and you know, The Little Mermaid, because she's in a section all to her own, and it goes from the chorus, as it is the entire ride of everyone singing, and it's just her singing, and then it goes back to everyone, and right. aside from, you know, you know, there are no mer-children of the world, or whatever, it just, it, it clashes, it takes you out of the ride, but uh, some of the other things were not as bad, and you saw the presentation about that
0: yeah um yeah and it did seem like again they were mostly trying to do it I mean definitely you know it's 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 got to be hard to be Tony Baxter or Kim Irvine and have to have have to change it from your management and still try to keep it so I definitely have sympathy for them there I definitely I just don't think they should have put the America room in there it looks cheesy no. it looks bad there are certain things that are really cool and we had to ride twice to see like Timon and Pumba they were really, right. they were in blended
1: routine. in fantastic. I couldn't believe it when I noticed them because uh, the way they blend in visually is perfect. I mean, whoever did if, whoever did that, if you're listening a good job, because, yeah. you know, in that ride, there's so much weirdness and so much sort of visual strangeness, which, that something like, which is great. And that something like that, if it's done right can fit in. And then for people who know it's there, it can be a fun sort of, you know, where's Waldo sort of thing. And for those who don't know it's there, they're not yanked out of it by like, Oh, well here's Ariel. But, uh, Timon and Pumbaa were great. Um, Mushu and Milan Mm. were in there. And that was another good instance. I don't like, they have this giant Mushu kite, which is tacky, but then they have an actual little, you know, pipe cleaner and glitter
0: mushu, which is pretty cool.
1: So Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's hit and miss, but I don't doubt their intentions. But
0: They did make a good point, and I don't think this is completely an excuse that the Cleopatra that's been in there was actually a lift from the movie Cleopatra that had just come out, and it's it was added in there by Mark Davis, and it's an exact pose of Elizabeth Taylor really? in Cleopatra. So they're arguing that characters are already in there. But, uh, no, but that would be an, uh, you know— if that is true, then that isn't an example of it being good. Yeah. And there are some that are bad, like Woody yeah. and Jesse. And,
1: yeah, I agree with you. The America scene does not need to be in there. It's
0: and it just, like, completely different. The music sounded really different. The music, I think, was from the Disneyland Paris version. I think you're and right. And I think the recording, the actual musical recording from the 1964 version is part of what makes it such a great ride. Um and it definitely shows, I mean, you know, it felt like you were in a different ride when you right. were in that American section. And it wasn't just because, you know, I know that some of that stuff was actually based off Mary Blair drawings. Like the canyons are part of the concept art for the, for the contemporary mural. But it did feel different.
1: So. It did feel different. And when you consider that America was expressly left out of the original attraction for a purpose... Because
0: it's the host. Yeah. It's it, just one of those things that shows you how delicate the balance is in that ride that, you know, a lot of people make fun of. But if one of the things is taken out or if something's a little bit different and off, it becomes a painful ride to be on. That, yeah, it, it yanks you out of it. That's true. Um, so, but overall, um, great, of yeah, course. love it. Toontown, I don't have much to say about this place. <laughs> you're not I don't, a fan of Toontown. I don't like Toontowns. This is the best Toontown there is, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I'm glad they're tearing ours down in the Magic it Kingdom. It is a real
1: Toontown. I'm also glad they're tearing ours down. But I will say, the Roger Rabbit cartoon spin dark ride was... Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought yeah. it was a good ride. And, you know, because you're spinning in three... Um, you can see in 360 degrees around you, because you're spinning like a teacup, they had to paint but they couldn't focus your attention on one thing. So they had to decorate everywhere. They had to add something to look at everywhere. And there's some nice, like, little visual effects, little
0: tricks and things throughout
1: that are, uh, I mean, it's a good little dark ride. And yeah, I'm I remember when that, of that.
0: when that ride came out, they said that they had uh, to start this idea. They had put a teacup in the Haunted Mansion. Uh, right. <laughs> that would be interesting. Which I would like to see. But, yeah.
3: yeah, Downtown, uh, whatever.
0: Yeah, Oh. Well. Uh, That's not your fault. Well, maybe it is.
1: (laughs) And then at last, we have Tomorrowland. Oh. So much promise. Maybe we should have gone the other way. But this is the way we progress through the park. Tomorrowland, as everyone probably knows, is kind of a mess. Um, Some would say disaster.
0: Yeah. It, it, well, let me just start by saying on a positive note that it was great to see a submarine lagoon again. Yes. It's something we haven't seen since 1994. It's great to see any sub going around in any body of water. It made us really excited.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And it's beautiful. I, you know, you go in on the monorail, you go in, however you go in, to see that body of water there, the waterfall, all the bubbles coming up, those submarines going through, it's, it's gorgeous. And it r- reminds us of what we miss, how much we miss it, too.
0: After that, things become a real visual and literal hodgepodge of things and really cramped and thrown together. (laughs) Well, it's like
1: the sort of space junkyard. It's like everything (laughs) fell out of orbit and just got lumped here. Because it really, this is the disastrous 1998 Tomorrowland remodel. And, you know, we grew up watching the video of the old 67 Tomorrowland, which was... Designed all at once built all at once and perfectly integrated and just so cool and this is there's characters and then there's stuff That's not there. You have an empty wedway track, which is a crime against humanity.
0: Yeah, bring it back
1: I mean seriously guys, you've got to bring the wedway back and I mean, that's just to have these tracks like rotting with like leaves and mildew on them it's terrible and You've got the Skyway station, I'm unused. You've got the People Mover station, unused. The Star Jets are not up there. They've got the giant, like, space tulip or whatever it is that like does a little dance. But uh, you yeah, have
0: the '70s mall area, Starcade.
1: You got the '70s mall area, which I was so excited to find, looking for a restroom, and wound up in a mall from the '80s, early '80s. <laughs> It was amazing in a kind of unfortunate way uh, uh, yeah that was glorious and uh, Space Mountain was down so we didn't get to ride that grr. yeah grr to that um, you know who cares about Star Tours who cares about Honey I Shrunk the audience yeah and luckily it was closed so we didn't have to care
0: Yeah, we didn't have to care about Star Tours either
1: no I don't care about Buzz but that's just me but it was better and, but it was, I will say, Buzz much, much I better than in, about in, uh, in the Magic Kingdom in Florida, but still
0: so unnecessary. That leaves us with just a couple. Uh, finding Nemo Submarine Voyage, which uh, a lot of build up to. It was great, again, to be back in the sub. It was very exciting. The ride the vehicle sub. was cool. Um, the ride, I missed having Big Blue World in there. That's like one of the big payoffs for the seas with Nemo and friends, which I defend as a good sea ticket. Um, yeah,
1: it was weird because I expected it to be building up to that to that song, and then it wasn't there, but it was a, very, a, it was a very long attraction. They fit a lot in, I think.
0: Yeah, it was very long. And
1: I'm not a fan of, with this one or the one in Florida, the sort of retread of the Finding Nemo story. I think they right. could have done a lot better than just rehashing that, but... The use of the technology was very impressive, and it was a
0: nice long ride. That first reef scene, when you went under there, that was just kind of no story involvement. It was just kind of you're down there, you're underwater. It was really cool, and you know, I think overall, obviously, that ride's great. It's not my favorite, but Um, it does show promise for things to come, and there are some great immersive things, obviously. Pardon the pun. True, true. Um,
1: And then there was uh, interventions, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) which I will say was much better than our interventions in Florida.
0: Yes, and the carousel feeder still moves, which I did not know. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, uh, mixed feelings on this. I definitely thought that it was much more. I think it's just it is nice to kind of be guided through interventions, and yet still have time to linger. I do hate the concept of interventions as trade show. I love the idea of it being you know a house of the future is fine that's great but we our first little pavilion was like the future of music by yamaha and it really wasn't no and b it was unless the
1: future of music is not push a button and something will play music for you while you like move your hands and just randomly
0: yeah And, and yeah but It was pretty neat. Upstairs was pretty neat. They had a lot of Epcot references. They had a lot of pictures of robots from Epcot. That was exciting. Uh, Yeah, from the the 80s.
1: They had G-Row, the GE robot, and the other, they had Smart One, weird and unexpected. But the house was cool. I mean, I like that using, showing the technology that you could get in the near future at your home that's cool technology. And it also meant I could go from room to room and like play the White Album really loud for yes, some yeah. reason. Yeah, and turn off the lights or something. Yeah, and turn off the lights on people. And then there was some big dude like putting on a dress in a mirror, and that was weird. Right, like, that was very strange.
0: But overall, I guess, yeah, it's no carousel of progress. It's I know no that.
1: carousel of progress. There's no progress city. But
0: yeah, so that that takes us about around the park and you take... We've the... been
1: all the way around. You'd get in the train and take the railroad back through the diorama for one last pass. Yeah, and then you're done. What, back to Main Street Station. Any final thoughts? I would say that uh, Tony Baxter's comments are pretty right on. It's charming. It's It doesn't have those grand vistas that the Magic Kingdom has. It doesn't have that feeling of, well, the blessing of size. And it can't really tell its story in the same way the Magic Kingdom does because it doesn't have that space to arrange things visually. Everything's just kind of right up on you. But they make it work, and it is Walt's Park, and it has some stuff that Disney World, the Magic Kingdom, would be well served to emulate. Like stuff like the Tiki Room that just can't be beat, and a lot of the little things. It would be hard. It's going to be hard for this Fantasyland redo to match their fantasy land out there
0: right but again it well i think the good thing about the fantasy land we which we're uh, maybe we'll talk about another segment but real quick is that one of the things about the magic kingdom i love is that it does use space uh to its advantage there are a lot of garden spots there are a lot of little places to sit on a bench They don't have that many uh, good ones in Disneyland. They have Thunder Ranch. It's basically about the only part that you can kind of breathe in and sit down and look. That's kind of, I feel like, what Fantasyland is, is, uh, that redo is taking advantage of. That's true. Either way, uh, I loved it. It was great. It did not disappoint. It also made me prouder of the Magic Kingdom. And just seeing how different they were and how kind of... You know, I just always used to be like, well, Magic Kingdom's kind of like Disneyland on the cheap. I wouldn't say that's what it is. There's definitely things in the infrastructure that are superior, but it is different, and it is less charming, perhaps, and less detailed.
1: And I will say that it's right in what you said about being there, seeing some things that aren't done as well as in the Magic Kingdom. I think a lot of people anticipate going out there and sort of being shamed because the I love you, Disneyland people, but you can be awful high and mighty. And, you know, you think that, oh, well, ours is obviously vastly inferior. And then you see some things that the Magic Kingdom does better. And you realize that it's something that can't really be ranked, like which one's one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. But they are Except different for studios in California, which have well, to be last. <laughs> they, they have to be last. But uh, they do things differently, but in ways that really make it work. For bo- to both of their credits. So I was not, I agree. I was not disappointed and I loved it. And, you know, you miss, as a Disney World person, you miss the Seven Seas Lagoon. You miss that sort of monorail to the resorts. But once you're in the park, it's, yeah, it's great. Any of you East Coasters, I highly recommend it.
0: Hey everyone, it's Beacon Joe. It's finally time to open up our mailbag. Yay! Our inaugural mailbag opening. So I'm just gonna, you know, <laughs> yeah, let's let's not waste any time. Let's just delve right into it. I'm just gonna...
3: Oh, I got letters, let's see letters here. here. Let's
0: see. Oh, oh, this one looks good. Okay. There's so many. I've got one right here. I've got, I've got a good one. Oh, and oh, I believe is- this was the first mailbag mail we received... I have it dated as Wednesday, October seventh, two thousand nine. Wow. At twelve forty nine p.m. It's almost
1: like they knew we were gonna do this.
0: Yeah, and that was uh, that's almost uh, six months ago. Anyway, okay. I digress. It's from Tony Banks, and Tony, Tony. Banks. Tony uh, wants to know what actor has appeared in the most Disney films. This does not include voices in the animated features. Thank you, and I'll hang up and listen.
1: (laughs) He also predicting that we will have voicemail at some point.
0: Tony, that was the uh, first question I received, and it was the last one I came up with a response to. So, Michael, I put it to you. Let's just ask you (laughs) right off the street. Do you know what actor has appeared in the most Disney live action films? Now, let me tell you how I did this. Because I think I know what Tony's asking for. And I think Tony's asking for the classic age of Disney live action.
1: I would assume.
0: So I checked up till 1980 because after that you get Touchstone, you get Hollywood Pictures, and it gets really confusing about the technicality of it all. Is it Nick Nolte? So I'm going. Or Bette Midler. (laughs) It's true. Uh, So I'm going from uh, The Reluctant Dragon, Song of the South, and really starting with Treasure Island, up until the black hole in 1979. Oh man! Can you tell me the actor or actress who has appeared in the most Disney films? Oh, and you research this. I do not know the answer. And I know it's going. Yeah. To I, be... Let me let me let me say this. You can give me a couple of answers because I had a couple of ideas, and I will say, yeah, your instincts may prove you right.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Well, that. um, Well, tell me this. Is it a name star or is it a character actor? As far as I know, it's a name star. Now, I might be incorrect, but I researched it pretty thoroughly and scientifically. And as far as I can tell, the people who appear in the most are name stars. The first couple. I'm going to say Haley Mills. That would be incorrect. Although Haley Mills has appeared most as a woman, followed by Helen Hayes, incidentally. Really, Really? Yes, to my knowledge. The great Helen Hayes. Now give me a give me a male name. Give me a male name. Uh Fred McMurray. That's a good guess, but it's incorrect. Now I guessed Kevin Corcoran. And I too oh, was see? incorrect. Moochie? Moochie wasn't it? That was a good no. guess. I would have guessed if I had thought of Moochie, I would have said Moochie over. Uh, McMurray. Now here's where it gets tricky. The answer could change if you include post 1980 work, but the answer for that time period is Tommy Kirk with 11 Disney films. Oh, see, and that was my first impulse, and I and with how many? Eleven. Man, now, Kevin Corcoran awesome. appeared in nine. I might, I might add. So he's up there. Many of the he, same. Uh, yeah, Kurt Russell is in eight. He was another guest of mine. Now. This is where it gets tricky because Dean Jones appeared in 10 before 1980. He also oh. appeared in the remake of That Darn Cat. So Right. He is he is tied. Tommy uh Fred McMurray, funny you should mention, he is he's in seven Disney films along with uh tied with Brian Keith. Really? I didn't Brian know he Keith was in, was that, in many. that many. Yeah. So uh yeah, and there are some character actors along the way. Alan Hewitt's appeared in a lot. Uh, yeah. Joe Flynn. Dick Van Patton's appear, appeared in five. Harry Morgan, six. So Harry Morgan pops up in a lot of things yeah. like that.
1: But, uh, I would have guessed it would have been somebody of the sort of
0: Alan Hewitt or even like, I don't know, Wally Bogue or somebody yeah, who. Would I was going to say background. Wally Bogue, our theme park friends, Wally Bogue and Paul Freeze, show up in a lot of Disney yeah. movies, but not quite. To the Tommy Kirk level. Oh, so I should have gone with
1: my first instinct. I would have had it. Yeah. Well,
0: uh, so good I research. That, good yeah. research. And I hope it's right if I'm wrong. I will rescind that. Just let me know. Moochie. Or if you're out there and you
1: disagree, let us
0: know. I know Moochie's been in nine. He was the first person I checked. Okay, let's see here. Let me dig deep here. another one. Good uh, late, this is a telegram. <laughs> okay. Hi, Beacon Joe. After seeing the concept art of Epic Mickey, check it out on Progress City Archives. Uh, That was me. And the recent purchase of Marvel, not so recent now. Yeah. Do you think Disney will offer more adult-targeted fantasy attractions to their parks to compete against Universal Studios? I know that when Disney tried innovating theme park design through Disney Quest Interactive, it was a huge disappointment. What do you think will be the next big... Theme park innovation. What will be the future of theme parks? Says longtime reader, Android Dreamer, or John Cohen. Well, I think the obvious answer is cave technology.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the flying carpet technology. And the flying carpet technology.
0: What do you think? What do you think about that? What do I think? Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think the talk. The talk. You know, there was a lot of talk, and when I was down there which was 99-2000, about a feature-length attraction. Baxter was really excited about that at right. the time.
1: And, you know, and, that's the thing that he really was pushing with
0: uh, Westcott. Right. That was the boat ride was going to be the feature-length attraction, wasn't it? Main yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah. Uh, also, he always referenced Tarzan, because that was a movie out at the time, saying, you know, imagine if you could go in the world of Tarzan and spend all day. In the... So I think that, you know... It could be possible Disney mulls over the feature length attraction some more. There was those rumors about Night Kingdom, which was supposed to be a smaller, interactive type experience. But I do think that interactive, one way or the other, interactive is the future. You know, uh, John mentioned a Toy Story Playland later in his ride. That's a big thing. You know, the Buzz thing, the Living Character Initiative, where you know the the, the characters recognize you and interact with you, right? And
1: then the, all the subsequent to, and this is another of the older emails, um, subsequent to that, all of it came out about the RFID, uh, the radio frequency technology, yes. which we've still really yet to see what they intend to do with that. But again, it goes with interactivity. We've also had the Space Mountain queue, and uh, you know these little test beds and, of course, uh, Jim McPhee Friend of the show, although he doesn't know it, uh, is now, whatever his title is, in charge of next generation experiences. And he's been working a lot in secret, uh, mm. sort of, with these technologies. So Interesting. I don't know. I, I, I think that it depends a lot on, as always, where the sort of ADD-riddled management decides to go with because it's like you said they were working on these the idea of the feature length experience but since then we've had thrill rides and we've had you know we're having these princess meeting greets which are interactive mm-hmm. but they're short and they're not i mean they are for little girls
0: only i think that is also an indicator you know this has has been a a trend for a while that, especially under Iger's leadership, that technology and effects are going to always be a big thing to push forward. Uh, I've heard that the Cinderella meet and greet, where she transforms into Cinderella, they're working on that effect now and it's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, that's supposed to be cool. Hopefully, that doesn't come at, you know, as we've talked about, and as in a compromise to overall theme or. You know, sometimes flashy effects can can be a little bit distracting. Right.
1: Oh, and it has to be incorporated. I mean, we're going to have meet and greets anyway. So you may as well have the best meet and greets in the world with all these cool effects. But I want to ride a ride. I want to have an attraction experience. I, a not under teen girl... I'm not going to want to go meet the princess every time. I mean, I think it's great that they have it. I think it's great that they're really plussing the experience. But there also needs to be something for everybody else. And I think in those sort of micro-targeted, they risk, I, I think they do themselves a disservice when they risk having, well, this ride is for, like, teenage boys and up, or 18 to 35 males. And this, I mean, it's very easy to do that with the marketing, but, and their, you know, scientific research, but the whole idea of the Disney experience was totally antithetical to that idea.
0: Well, let's see. I have, I have one more here uh, that I picked. It's, it's very long and I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're going to keep some of it for future podcasts. James, thank you for, for writing such a, a good one. I know. Um, this is good stuff. Yeah. It reads, gentlemen, thanks for the fun first podcast. I found your discussions to be both informative and entertaining and look forward to more from you in the future. Thanks, Why, thank James. Thank you. So I'm going to kind of do a digest here. Um, I would like your perspective on what exactly happened to the planned Beastly Kingdom area and Animal Kingdom Park. Oh. and Sadness. Is it true that many of the Imagineers working at DAC were laid off and subsequently hired by Universal Studios or Island Adventure Park? Well, uh, yes, it is true that many Imagineers
1: who were laid off in the 90s were hired up uh, by the creative team or the companies that were creating Islands of Adventure, which is why a lot of the areas of that park... Uh, The Lost Continent, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dueling Dragons. Right. Were very similar to plans uh, for Beastly Kingdom. And uh, you mentioned Dueling Dragons. There was, of course, the Dragon's Tower uh, that was going to be built, a coaster with an animatronic dragon. And while Dueling Dragons doesn't have that, certainly a lot of the theming and the general concept are very similar. Mm-hmm. Also, the, um, if you remember, I don't know if they even have it anymore. The, um, in Jurassic Park, the little pterodactyl flyer yes. things that kind of went around on right. the rail above, that was based, if I'm not mistaken, on an idea for Animal Kingdom. Interesting. I never so, knew that one. Yeah. A lot, uh, a lot of those kind of things turned up there. And as to why Beastly Kingdom didn't happen, it's, you know, just money and Eisner, and one of those will get around to it, and then they never get around to it. Uh, When Animal Kingdom opened up, you know, it, it, it had poor attendance for a long time. And of course, it was that sort of sick mentality of, well, unless it's popular, we don't need to put any money into it, which doesn't make any sense. But then, of course, if it's popular, then why do we need to put money into it? So... You know, one of those things. But, uh, you know, there's always hope.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, rumors always persist that it might be on the horizon. It doesn't ever seem, you know, especially when Everest came out and it was such a bump in Animal Kingdom's attendance. You got, you got the feel that some Imagineers were making a push to, to put in Beastly Kingdom.
1: Well, we had this sort of spate of rumors a couple of years ago. Now, I guess it's a couple of years ago. Time goes by so fast. Before the Fantasyland thing appeared, which was on really nobody's radar. And there was a slate of attractions that were expected widely and leaked widely to be the next thing. And that included the Monsters, Inc. roller coaster, indoor roller coaster at uh, MGM Mm -hmm. and Star Tours 2, which eventually we did get. And a couple of other things um, in the Magic Kingdom in Tomorrowland and in Adventureland. But then also a changed-up version at uh, Animal Kingdom, sort of fusing some of the ideas. It wasn't Beastly Kingdom. But it combines some of those concepts from Beastly Kingdom with the concepts from Mysterious Island from Tokyo Disney Sea, which, of course, is the Captain Nemo, his volcano with 20,000 leagues under the sea and journey to the center of the earth. So something that would incorporate those kind of attractions with maybe a more mythical feel. The Mm -hmm. rumors were pretty nebulous, but it's pretty sure – that's what they were working on and then of course everything changed and then the economy went in the dumpster and uh you know now we're working on fantasy land but someone had told me not too long ago that it's good that sort of in the recent time span it didn't get built when it did because the plans had been scaled back to the point where it would have been embarrassing like sort of walk through attraction. Museum of the Weird. Uh, Museum of the Weird, like 20,000 Leagues, uh, Disneyland 1955, sort of, oh, wow. you know, walkthrough kind of thing. And of course that again, all rumor, but things that I hear, but it's something they've thought about at least recently. So that's, that is my hope to you, dear reader. And hopefully they'll do it because Animal Kingdom really needs it. And fans are not, I think they think fans are going to let them off the hook. If they just ignore it for so long. Need some okay.
0: more dark rides over there. Come on. People,
1: yeah. Need somewhere to get in, get out of the heat. So I don't think fans are going to let him off the hook until we get that dragon that's on the logo.
0: <laughs> While we're on uh, Animal Kingdom, uh, do you have any inside info on the plight of Everest Yeti Animatronic? From what I have heard, the platform on which he stands is irrevocably cracked and Disney's fears of the beast falling onto a passing train have forced them to utilize the B-mode-slash-show-mode operation to simulate movement instead of providing the real deal. How can Disney close down Everest for an extended refurb without killing attendance levels in a park that has actually trended up in a down economy? Now, I will say, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Yeti does operate on a couple of different modes. The first mode, which most of you have not seen, maybe... Because it seemed like it stopped pretty early on. He moves a lot. He grabs towards the train, etc. The second mode, he moves a little bit. The mode he was in when I saw, uh, he doesn't move. There's a strobe light on him, and he's just kind of sitting there. (laughs) So it's a completely different experience. (laughs) It's really bad. Um, Yeah, the A mode,
1: the show mode, whatever it is, is so cool. It's ridiculously ridiculously cool and I heard somebody discussing this recently about how long it had been since that had been working and it was really amazing it's been years the you know rumor or conventional wisdom is that there is something either in the concrete foundation or in the support mechanism itself that is sort of cracked that is not as sound as it should be to support Constant operation because it's an incredibly powerful piece of machinery and it's incredibly, I mean, it's a prototype. It's the first of its kind of this sort of insane device. So I don't think it's in danger of falling onto the track or anything like that, certainly, but there is sort of repetitive stress of operating it all the time. I had heard recently, and I don't remember how long it is, how long that the show would need to go down. Uh, to fix it and it's really not that long. But we know how Disney World Management is. We saw this with Space Mountain. California, Disneyland got an enormous more than a year downtime for their Space Mountain. Ours was much, much, much shorter because they're in the panic of like offending people if they have their rides closed, which means things don't get refurbed, things don't get upgraded, and you know, we get stuck with this kind of situation. I have heard that one of the plans may involve building a second Yeti. I have heard, uh, you know, you hear all sorts of things, but there are a lot of effects in Everest that don't work, from waterfalls to snow to... Flying bird. The, the bird. Oh, the bird on a stick. The mist. You know, lots of things that cut in and cut out, and uh, they really, I mean, they have to close it. They have to close it and fix it, because that... the mode it is in now is absurd compared to what it's supposed to be
0: you know it would have been wonderful to have that beastly kingdom come online according to plan before the economy crashed you know if you could open up something else and then close everest i mean i think they're obviously still seeing the benefits of building everest which is great it makes me happy that animal kingdom is doing well And for a good reason, but at some point they will have to close it down and get this stuff back.
1: And that's a good point. If they had gone ahead with those plans, they would have those attractions on the way within the next year to year and a half. Right as the economy is turning around, people are looking to go on vacation again. And then they'd have those new attractions to advertise while they take Everest down to fix it. And then they announce return of the Yeti. So you got to think ahead.
0: And uh, finally, uh, James wrote us a bunch more that we're going to use later, but something I wanted to bring up because we are going to Disney World next week. And it's just something exciting. He said, I would love to hear about your favorite foods at the WDW parks, resorts, and downtown Disney area. Keep in mind, I'm not asking about your favorite places to eat, but specifically which entrees, appetizers, burgers, snacks, desserts, beverages you enjoy the most. Now... Here's what I am saying. He mentions the Dole Pineapple Float at Magic Kingdom. Wonderful yes. school bread at Epcot, which you love. Yes. Uh, peanut butter and jelly shakes at Hollywood Studios, which I have which, not heard of. Yeah, I've never had. Pancakes at Kennedy Cafe. Yes. Scallop Forest at Raglan Road. Never been there. So... Um, I'm not going to let you mention school bread. You are a huge (laughs) proponent of school bread. bread. I'm a school bread evangelist. Here's what I want to know. I want to know a couple of things you are looking forward to eating this time when we go down to Disney World. Aside from school bread. Aside from school bread. Tell the people something they don't know or haven't thought of in a while. Well, see,
1: it's funny that we got this email because I've had a couple of comments recently. This about the food and then someone today uh, about that I should write more about books. And those are two, or Disney books. These are, Those are two of the things that I founded the blog to talk about and really haven't yet. Because it's like you're holding on to the good stuff because you really want to talk about it. Um, things I am looking forward to. Well, you get the very sort of simple experiential things, like sitting on Main Street with your popcorn. That's a very simple thing, but it's not really because of the popcorn.
0: One of my all-time favorites, this is an experiential thing, and I'm going to count it, is a churro, and Nescafe coffee, which I'm strangely addicted to, on a rocking chair in Frontierland, watching the band with the tuba, the banjo, and the dobro. Very nice. Very
1: nice. And I'll go with that, because I always love my uh, giant cup of cupo diet Coke. I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. Please do. We're having lunch at um, Liberty, Liberty Tree. Tavern. Yeah. The dessert there. The toffee... Chocolate, whatever the fool it
0: was called. I hope it's still there. That was a I, if it is not year there, of a million cry dessert of sadness.
1: That was redonkulous. That was good. I always love the Pilgrim Feast insane. there. It's pretty simple. But Pilgrim Feast. I'm looking forward to anything at Ohana. Mm. I mean, I love oh, I love the Ohana. Ohana's
0: got a new menu. You're gonna have to see. I serious? like the new. I mean, it always changes, but it always seems like they they do good things. It, it doesn't matter. Anything Ohana
1: is good by me.
0: I will say the pot stickers at Ohana. You have not had yet. I am looking forward to having oh, them. Oh, that's right. You've been since I, I have. I have. And
1: I have probably. Well, if you
0: want specifics, I'll say the pineapple there. But it's pineapple gone. There. Oh, oh, this is
1: bread pudding it's now, right? It's been gone, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm looking forward to the schnitzel at the beer garden.
1: Oh, that's Maybe
0: right. They put a little Jaeger sauce on there for my... There's food. the
1: beer garden. Yeah.
0: Oh, there! Well, yeah, there's so much good there too. <laughs>
1: He's calling us out for specific places, but what do you do when like everything's well, good? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. I may go for. I may go for, um, one of the absurd Toll House cookie ice cream sandwiches. Face in the kingdom, the cookie face. Yeah, the cookie face may go for. See, I, my all. I would have mentioned in my all times the citrus swirl, but they've changed it. They changed it to some sort of. Nonsense that's not a citrus swirl.
0: I like the uh, the little candied nuts over a world showcase, oh, that's another experiential to... thing. Now, do you sometimes... get the walnuts or the uh, was it? I like to get pecans.
1: pecans, pecans.
0: I like to get the pecans, but it's very that place closes and it makes me so angry. It closes before illuminations, and I always have to like run from El Rio de Tiempo to get there on time. They close at different times, and sometimes the nuts aren't as hot as it, you know. So, yeah. But usually it's it's pretty great. And again, get the Nest Cafe. I don't care if it's late at night, you know. (laughs) Nest Cafe is amazing. I don't. You're gonna have to write about Nest Cafe. I'm gonna write about Nest Cafe, but I'm worried. Scientifically, you know, I I have an a similarly odd fascination with Starbucks coffee. It's kind of like non coffee coffee. Uh, Nescafe, but yeah, those are I, sort I, of the
1: two poles of the coffee world. Yeah,
0: I've heard that Starbucks might be starting to sponsor Market House at Disneyland. That doesn't make Starbucks go throughout. You know, I want my Nescafe. You gotta have the Nescafe, or Cafe. the Disney difference. <laughs> it really
1: is. I will tell you what, I'm looking forward to, because you have been there and I have not. Is the quick
0: service at the Contemporary? Mm. Yeah, that we had the Disney Dining Plan last time, and it's always a, a kind of game we play to see who can get the most. Uh, you know, gigantic feast off of uh, the Disney dining plan. And let me tell you all an insider tip. that <laughs> Contempo Cafe. It's your zippity doo tip for today. It is your tip for today. The Contempo Cafe might be the best quick service or biggest quick service meal you're going to have. That and the Tangerine Cafe are, are pretty oh, amazing yes. quick service Disney dining deals. Uh, that's Ooh, a good That one. was alliterative. Thank you. Uh, that's good also the new Captain Cook's uh, Polynesian has a good menu but, oh that's right see I haven't been to that either they got good lo main. I'm sorry we gotta quit talking about restaurants anyway I guess we should quit talking about this thanks James for the great uh, letter and we will get to the other things that you mentioned yeah. we're not gonna mention to them to our people because we want them to think they're our ideas exactly
1: stuffed french toast banana stuffed french toast <sighs> okay we've gotta stop I'm getting hungry all right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop some knowledge from another voice who uh, wrote in a very nice email about uh, the last podcast. But for those for those who remember previously on the Progress City Radio Hour, we talked about the Pirates of the Caribbean and your favorite
0: room and my favorite room too, probably. Oh, you mean trash pirates shooting in your face? That's that's the one. I referenced the, show number the one.
1: Armory reference show number one, where the drunk pirates are all hanging over the boat, shooting their guns in your face. And he says he says the mysterious end of pirates. Uh the idea of course they're there shooting at barrels of explosives in the armory. And you were supposed to escape up the waterfall as the gunpowder went off. And we talked about this because in the old uh, show from 1968, From Pirates of the Caribbean to Tomorrowland. Which is wonderful. Which is all the best. They edit in this like fake exploding barrel. into. They're filming the ride through, just showing guests riding through, but they use a little creative license. And they've animated in... Bullets, and you know, imagine Disney doing this today animating in bullets to make it look like the pirates are shooting real bullets at people. And at the very end, there's kind of like a superimposed barrel that explodes, and then people kind of scream, and the boat goes well, up the And left. also,
0: I might add, incidentally, that there's this one smooth guy in the back, flanked by two women, and he casually puts his arm around both women yep. after the barrel explodes.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of like, Hey, ladies, look for that, I'll protect you. Uh, well, apparently that was how the ride was supposed to end and they couldn't ever figure out a way to pull it off, pull off the effect really well. And so, um, they kind of ignored that cause Walt died right at that point and there was so much else going on. They ignored it, but he does say this, and this is really interesting, uh, For a few years, they actually did find a solution as several World of Motion figures were placed as pirates hauling a large chest of treasure up the hill. As you got higher up the hill, you saw the treasure chest was now abandoned and in the clutches of the skeleton of a pirate with a large knife sticking out of his back. The tableau echoed back to the treasure caves and really provided the required circular resolution to the story. Now all that's gone now, and that's where Jack Sparrow is. But I thought that was so. Of course, we
0: never saw that. That was such a cool ending. That sounds really cool to bring it back. Uh, like he said, to you know, bring you're going up a waterfall, and you're kind of going back through the story. And what you anything? see, dead men tell no tales. So what I anything? thought that was a cool
1: bit of information. Yeah. I have one more, uh, one more little note uh, from Foxfur over at Passport to Dreams, Old and New, which everybody should read. It's wonderful. Uh, by the way, her Lake Buena Vista piece, have you read that yet? Have you I seen that?
0: have. I did not know she was responsible. Man. Yeah. Foxfur. Good job. For, yeah. I'm jealous. We'll have words about that.
1: But uh, she wrote in mentioning, it, sort of coaxing me into a rant about you know last time we did the hard facts about the transportation system and she mentioned that uh of course now we have the new high-speed rail going from tampa to orlando it's going to have a stop on disney property which is probably going to be down around the wide world of sports area and so she points out that of course this would be the time to rethink and restructure the resort's transportation grid hmm. because it doesn't make any sense to have these people dropped off in the middle of nowhere essentially disney as far as disney world goes and what are they going to do are they going to take just have buses that go to there from the resorts or only when the train comes in or what and you know the rejiggering of resort transportation is something that comes up over and over again and they never Finally, get around to it, and so basically, she was just prodding me with that, saying, You know, what are we going to do about it? So, what I I want you to tell, talk about when you were down there Mm -hmm. and the um, the thinking that was happening then about the expansion.
0: Well, uh, I was down there in '99 2000, like I've said, uh, you know, various maps i've i saw and various people i talked to various meetings we had by various executives uh all seem to point towards scaling down the resort bus system or the uh you know walt disney world resort bus system should i say uh they said they did a lot of research on when you know how the frequency of bus and obviously it's a pollutant and how that was and alternatives to that there was talk about a monorail uh, there was maps of the monorail going to studios there was talk about connecting the monorail to animal kingdom animal kingdom lodge maybe um there was talk about light rail going uh, down towards fort wilderness dixie landings the village uh there was talk about an individualized transportation kind of people mover system that you can see at. uh West Virginia University. So right, I, right. I don't know if anything was exactly uh, set in stone. Obviously, it's not. Uh, I do think that the monorail route to studios was pretty set. I was going to leave by Journey into Imagination, go behind Yacht and Beach, and uh, hit up the studios. But I do know that earlier on, there was a plan for a maglev train to the Orlando International Airport. Uh, this right. was in the 80s, I believe. Yeah, I think so. It was going to connect to Epcot Center which I kind of wish the high-speed rail would go into Epcot. I know but, that would be
1: fitting, very fitting. Uh, yeah,
0: I feel like that's kind of problematic with the route it's going on. Um, but also that, that that pad, there is a pad for another monorail station at Epcot when you walk all that distance from the monorail to the ramp. Um, that was supposed to be another monorail platform.
1: Uh, right, right. And there are foundations for the pilings for the uh, supports for the rail mm-hmm. to go uh, to the village, to Lake Buena Vista yeah. as well. So that was supposed to
0: have a monorail route, and it was supposed to have an internal wedway loop,
1: as was Epcot, by the way. So
0: Yeah, a lot of that, you know, it's, it's again, money. It's incredibly expensive to build monorails, but I do believe that there was some faulty construction on Epcot that caused some cost overruns that, well they put a bad taste in Disney's mouth as yeah. well.
1: They opted to go a cheaper route and it wound up
0: hurting them in the end. And I think that affected it, it going to the village eventually, didn't it? Well, I think Eisner probably affected that more right. than anything. Well, obviously, you know, monorail is is the dream solution, but there was a lot of talk about alternatives which I think would be great and unfortunately they they opted on getting a whole new bus fleet, which, you know.
1: Well, there were, I think they were building all these plans, and then there were the terrorist attacks. Right. And then there's like, well, let's just do buses to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what they're going to do. I don't have a lot of hope these days, but they have to do something because their bus situation has just gotten. You know, I
0: really feel like a good solution would be to build a new TTC at Epcot. Epcot is at the hub of... uh, It's almost, you'd say, at the center. Right. Yeah. So you could have some kind of form of transportation linking the high-speed rail to Epcot and then have, you know, buses from all over like they used to, uh, you know, and other forms of transportation meet at Epcot. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a sucker for the old transportation and ticket center, but it's just not... You know, property's gotten so spread out these days that, you know, if you put something down at the Wide World of Sports or put it up at the Magic Kingdom, the ride to Animal Kingdom or the ride to the Magic Kingdom is going to be long yes. and painful. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, that's uh, thanks to everyone for the comments
0: and prompts and questions. Please keep them coming. Yeah. Email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. If we haven't uh, read yours aloud, This time, either we're using yours as a story idea or we're going to get to it another time. But we always love story ideas and follow-ups and questions and more. Now, I do have one request. I got an email early on from someone asking a question about the Seven seven Seas Lagoon. I have the answer to it, but I want to read your question. So, re-mail that to me if you are listening. And thanks for sending it. All right. And thanks for listening. See you next time. Well, that about wraps it up for us here again at the Progress City Studios. We hope you've enjoyed your time here with us. Yep, yeah, we got it.
1: Man, that's two in the can. That's two it's done. Two in the can.
0: That's a rare amount of follow-up for me here. Yeah, yeah. and we are going to tell you now, and maybe taunt some of you that when you're listening to this, we're probably in Disney World right now right you could be listening to this and we could be simultaneously on the wedway and probably are um so yeah so that means that it's gonna be just a little bit before our next podcast but we're gonna have some exciting material from down there where we're armed with armed to the teeth with pencils and cameras (laughs) which would be no match for pirates with pistols and cannons.
1: This is true, but hopefully we won't that won't happen.
0: Um, yeah, the Sherman brothers. What, <laughs> what more can you say? Western River
1: Expedition.
0: <laughs> yeah. School bread. Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Breathless Mahoney. <laughs> the I kid. had to say Breathless Mahoney. Oh, the kid. Oh, that that kid.
1: But he he you know he he turned it around in the end.
0: Yeah. He wasn't the scamp we initially thought he was, after all, was he? No,
1: he had a heart of gold. He did. But uh, yeah, good, good show that where, with the Robin Hood. That, oh, that was well, you know. I learned a lot. Shoot. And who? Now we have fond memories of Horizons as well. Yeah,
0: and I, I'm looking forward to hearing more about what happened there slash, what that ride was like, because I just can't seem to remember anything before Mission Space, because it's so exciting. If only we had some vehicle with which to explore
1: hmm. these many worlds of hmm. Disney. I wonder. Maybe we'll have to think about
0: that, too. Maybe you'll have to think about that, listener. And
1: dear listener, thank you for listening. Yeah. You made it all this way through another podcast? I know, number two. We hope you think it was Empire Strikes Back.
0: Hey, and yeah, we've got some more exciting things coming your way. Some mm-hmm. some different different segments on the way. Obviously, again, we're going to be at Disney World, so we're, who knows? Who, who knows, knows who what, we're going to find on the street? You know, it, it is our last
1: chance, probably, to experience the excitement of Mickey's Toontown Fair. Oh. So you know, we're going to
0: make the most of that. I just wish I could have one of those shirts back that I used to wear when I greeted at Mickey's Mickey's house. <laughs> it was like a Mickey Mickey cowboy print. Those oh, are pretty
1: man. Cool. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, I may never. I may spend the whole week in Toontown Fair just trying mm. to savor the magic one last time.
0: I will savor the magic of when I watched a fireworks display hit the uh, one of the tents and catch it on fire one time, <laughs> which made me very happy. <laughs> Which is this probably, is more smolder. It was more of a smolder. the
1: most exciting thing that ever happened over there. That's,
0: yeah. I, yeah I RIP circus tents.
1: I hate that was before the days of the cell phone. You could have
0: mm. been a YouTube smash hit. Out with the old circus tents, in with the new. In with the new circus tents. Dueling Tons. Dumbo's uh, TM. <laughs> circus tent for the next
1: generation. Literally, yeah. next, next gen. Yeah. Well, yes, the, they survived, and we're going to let them go. But first, we must remind them of the things that they have to
0: do. Yes, you—you you all have done a, a wonderful job at, at listening on iTunes and rating us, commenting. You just ask those of you who haven't write a review for us on iTunes. It's extremely helpful for us. It is, yeah. and um, and rate us. You know, if you're afraid to leave a profound comment, just just click on the stars. Don't be afraid of your yeah. own profundity. If you're a, a blogger, you could you could also write a review on your blog. It is which it some is. of you have kindly done. Uh, and if you're a a twitterer, a tweet. tweet tweeter, t- you can tweet about us. You can retweet us. You can follow us at progresscityusa.com. Oh yeah, yeah. On the yeah. Twitter the
1: Twitter slash progresscityusa. Also at the behest of uh one of our friends we added a Progress City USA page on the Facebook. Or as some people call it the FABO. The FABO. Uh-huh. PC. It's just another way to stay integrated in the virtual world. <laughs> we ha- well, we have to, you know, cross monetize our revenue streams and this is true. Things like that with the
0: vertical integration. Indeed. But thank you all for listening. Thanks for everything uh, we heard back from you on the first episode. And, you know, for those of you who have sent suggestions and and are upset because we haven't taken up the suggestions, we do appreciate them, and we are getting around to getting to some of your feedback and segments based on your feedback, but uh, we had to get this one out before we went to Disney World. That's very true. There have been... a a lot of very good suggestions.
1: And just if we haven't followed up on that yet, you're, it has not gone unheeded. So. Yeah.
0: And just continue to send us those at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Exactly. Comments, questions, suggestions,
1: whatever you want. Yeah. We're your little dancing monkey, make us dance. We are. All right. Thanks, folks. Hope you enjoyed and see you next
0: it's time to go remember
3: everything
4: you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today
0: so if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress tell them about progress city thanks Thanks for for joining joining us. us Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour.
3: Magnification, magnification, magnification. Magnification.